today I'm talking with Jeff Mark, who has been a pretty, he's done some pretty interesting stuff. He's been the, the main character for, uh, is the main inspiration behind the movie around um, the MIT students that uh, beat the, the Vegas casinos in Blackjack. Um, he uh, started an internet company and is currently um, has, is, is publishing a book around using statistics to make better decisions. So, uh, Jeff, thanks for joining me on the call. Thanks for having me. Well, you want to just go ahead and tell me a little bit about yourself and who you are and you know, maybe summarize what you've been doing in a little bit better than I, than I can? Sure. Um, well, I guess, you know, I've done a lot of different things. I mean, I've been an Internet entrepreneur for the last, I would say, almost 14, uh, 13, 14 years. Um, I graduated from MIT in 1994 and uh, went into a world of finance for a couple of years, uh, but never really took on to that. And my professional career has sort of been all about entrepreneurship. But uh, beyond, behind that, during that whole time, from the time I was a senior in college till um, about 2001, so for about seven years, I was a professional card counter. Um, I played blackjack using statistics and, and numbers and data to beat the casinos legally. And, and we did quite well during that time frame, um, winning somewhere in the neighborhood of about $5 million as a group. And um, it was sort of like a, a summer job kind of thing or a, a hobby. Um, but we spent a lot of time on it, and we treated it very much like a business. And then in 2001, when it was all over, I approached a, a writer who was a friend of mine by the name of Ben Mesrick. Um, he'd written about six books before and uh, had never written anything of this genre. And I approached him and said, hey, i got a great story for you. i got a great um, idea for your next book. And uh, we wrote Bring It on the House together, um, which became a New York Times bestseller, and then uh, was the inspiration for the movie 21, which came out and, and was a blockbuster. It made $150 million in the U.S. Uh, sorry, $150 million in the box office, um, and uh, was number one in the U.S. two weeks in a row. Why do? You, why would you stop? There's obviously a limit to uh, how much card counting you can do since you get you get kicked out of casinos, right? Yeah, uh, there is. I mean, basically, what happens is that you know when you uh, count, count cards, it's not something that's very hard for the casinos to figure out that you're doing it. So it's not like there's a ton that you can do to trick them into thinking that you're not counting cards. So it only lasts, no matter how good you are, it only lasts for a certain amount of time. And for us, it only lasted, you know, for me personally, it only lasted about seven years. So, I mean, I, there were a few reasons that I stopped playing. One, I mean, it became harder and harder to play. And two, as Amazing and as fun an experience as it is, there's other things in life that I really wanted to move on to, and certainly focusing more on on my entrepreneur's you know experience and, and building companies is something that I was I was much more focused on and wanted to spend more time on. So you're saying even if you could continue to make a good income through card counting, you would rather just stop that over time anyway and, and be an entrepreneur just because it's more fulfilling? Yeah, I mean I think so, and and also you know it's more lucrative in the end. Like Blackjack was very lucrative and very fun, but. You think about it, and you're you're making you know small amounts of, of of money. Our advantage over the casino is about two percent. And one of the lessons that I try to get across in my new book, The House Advantage, is that you know your advantage over the casino or your advantage in life when you use statistics is small. So what you want to try to do is get a large sample size or a large amount of time or a large amount of trials to realize that small advantage. Now in blackjack, again, let's say our advantage was two percent of every dollar we put on the table. Well, you need to be betting lots of money and you need to bet, make lots of bets 
for that to become a lucrative um, operation. So in the end, it turned it, it became more like work rather than interesting, and then running a lot of money through, which was then also attracting the attention from the casino. Well, you know what? I mean, it always was a lot like work. I mean, I think that one of the things that you know the book and the movie try to sort of do is make it seem much more glamorous than it is. I mean, there was there was certainly glamour. I mean, we were staying in you know two floor suites and with pool tables and their own private pools and all that kind of stuff, and we were limoed all over and. You know, we get into clubs right away and get all these great comp meals, and that kind of stuff was glamorous for sure. But the actual part of playing blackjack, we were there to make money. We weren't there to drink. We weren't there to party. We were there to make money. So it was very much like work, and it is a little bit of a grind. I mean, you've got to sit at that blackjack table for a long time, and you're not there to have fun. You're not there to have drinks. You're not there to go party with your friends. You're there to make money. And so you, you mentioned it was a group of you guys, um, and so it was a group of you over seven years that made $5 million? Um, yeah, no, well, the group made close to $5 million, or a little over $5 million. Um, there was, you know, there's, when I say the group, the thing about the MIT Blackjack team that most people don't realize is that there was a core group, and then there became a lot of splinter groups because the team did so well. So, you know, you make money, you split off, and you form your own group. It's it's not unsimilar to sort of entrepreneurship or, or whatnot, where you have some success and then you want to kind of go off and do it on your own. Well, that, that happened with the Blackjack team. And so, I mean, is that all still going on? Are there still MIT or, or a lot of guys out there doing it, or is this, is this sort of an MIT thing? And how, does, how does that you work? You know, I don't know what currently is going on. I mean, I, there's, a, there's a line from my, my new book, sort of concludes the new book where um, one of the guys from the team talks about it and he says, you know, as long as Blackjack is beatable, there's going to be people out there trying to beat it. And uh, that's kind of that's kind of the, the um, I, I believe that also. So they're out there, they're, you know, there's guys out there still, still doing that today, doing what you did, you know, those, you know. Back when you were back when you were a student, and we just don't know about it. And the casinos are working on catching. Well, I'm sure there's people out there still playing blackjack because it's beatable, and I'm sure there's people out there trying to beat it. Do I? I'm not in the blackjack circles anymore, so I don't know about all the groups trying to do it. I mean, there's there's definitely the concept of card counting is not novel, so certainly there's lots of people out there, and I'm sure that you know my original book and hopefully my new book will spawn more people trying to do it. I'm just curious, just on the on the theme of the the the, 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 the blackjack and, and stuff. I mean, was it fun or was it really not fun at all? The blackjack stuff. Yeah. Oh, it was it was definitely fun, and the reason that it was fun is actually very much the reason like entrepreneurship is fun for me. People always ask me, "What do you miss most from those days playing blackjack?" And what I miss actually is the camaraderie. I miss that. Here I am with four of my friends flying to Vegas and, um, you know, taking the casinos down. You know, that's the same sort of feeling you get with entrepreneurship when you start a company with friends or people that are close to you or people that you end up being close to. Um, you know, the idea that, that here we are flying to Vegas and, and most people or, you know, the lion's share of people that go to Vegas lose money, and we're the few that actually go and make money. Um, and, you, you know, again, like there were a lot of fun moments during the times when we were out in Vegas. and. I guess what I'm trying to emphasize is that at the end of the day, this was work to us. This wasn't entertainment, um, although it was fun. I mean, it's the same thing about when, you know, people that really like their jobs, they enjoy 
the time they spend at their jobs to some degree, and they get a they get a rush from the different successes they have. Certainly, when we had successes along the way, um, we were you know it was it was a big rush. Hmm. What were some of the like the most fun moments that you had? I think you know when you play when you get to play um, blackjack with celebrities, it's pretty fun um, just because you know oftentimes you're betting a lot more than they are, so they become it almost like switches things on them where they become much more interested in you than you are in them. They want to know like what you do and you know how'd you get so much money and all that kind of stuff. Um, and certainly that that is that's a lot of fun. You know, I think um, the different times where we've we've won lots of money or, or you know gotten to travel places and done quite well. You know, I, I remember there was a time when Chicago, when I was living out there, where they just opened a brand new casino out there. It's called the Grand Victoria and El- Grand Victoria in Elgin, Illinois. Um, that place was so they had no idea about card counting. So my friends would fly in, and it was great because I was living in Chicago, and I knew nobody, and my friends would fly in for us to play blackjack together for the weekend, so that would be a blast. Then we'd go, and we'd play there all, you know, all day, and then we'd leave at, like, 10 p.m. and head into Chicago, and, and, you know, we'd win lots of money, and then we'd go into Chicago and, you know, go hang out and party and hit the bars as as a group of friends, which was just, which was fun, you know. And the thing about the whole experience of sort of like going and winning, you just, that part of it, the rush of, of, you know, going into the casino and winning, it's, it's, it's pretty cool if you think about it, because again, not a lot of people go into casinos and win consistently. In fact, very few do. And so for us to be the few that did and to, to know that we were, you know, I think one of the things that's kind of interesting is that we pretty much knew we were going to win. There were times, of course, where we would lose, you know, because our edge was so small. But in the end, we always knew we were going to win. There wasn't, like, ever a time where we had to, you know, stop our operations because we ran through our capital. We always bounced back and, you know, had a profitable quarter or profitable year or, or whatnot. When you were, when you were on tables with celebrities and you were, you were betting much more money than they were, like, how much money were you putting down? Like, what, what was some well, of the I mean, bigger there, amounts there was, of money? There was a time that, like, I was playing – and during um, the NBA lockout in Foxwoods, and <clears throat> there was a big fight that weekend. Roy Jones Jr., who was a big boxer, and um, Shane Mosley, who was just kind of up and coming, were both fighting on the same card. And the, a bunch of the Knicks were there, Patrick Ewing, John Starks, Alan Houston. And I remember um, we, we went, I sat down at a table, and, you know, I'm betting in the thousands, so like, you know, three, four, Anywhere at that table, I think from two to, to six thousand dollars, and John Starks was there, who played for the Knicks next to me, and he was betting anywhere from you know two to five hundred dollars, and Alan Houston was there also watching, and Alan Houston started calling me big money, and I remember um, you know the rest of the night I would see the Knicks, and he would come up and say hi to me, and he'd be like, hey, big money, what's up? And, you know, having this you know NBA star, he's now I think. You know, president of the Knicks or something like that, or has a high up position with the Knicks. You know, having him call me big money was was a blast. And then that that time, I actually uh, during that run lent five hundred dollars to John Starks because he ran out of money and he needed to double down on uh, his hand and didn't have any money left to do it. So I lent him five hundred dollars to do it and told him to pay me back when he won. 
he ended up winning, giving me back my $500, but didn't say a word of thank you. So I was kind of joked that I'll never have John Starks on my fantasy basketball team from that moment on. And you and you were betting all that money, and you were, what, like 27 or 28 or something, right? Yeah, I was probably 26, 25, 26. The worst, the worst part about it all is that I'm Asian American, so not only am I young, but I also look young. So it's uh, it's 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 even funnier too because I think these kids these people are like where, where did this guy get so the other interesting thing is you know and they talk about this a little bit <clears throat> being Asian American helped a lot because of the stereotypes that the casinos play uh, or uh, subscribe to where they think Asians are big gamblers and it kind of like looked natural for us to be betting lots of money. Did you ever run into any like uncomfortable moments when you got kicked out of casinos? Yeah, I mean, there's a you'll you'll see in, in the House Advantage in the in the book you're reading right now that there's a, a chapter all about getting run off a, a riverboat in Shreveport, Louisiana, and it kind of just talks about what are the the different um, practical dilemmas that you face uh, when employing analytics when you run into you know real world issues and and the analogy here was that. You know, in Shreveport, Louisiana, we won $60,000 at the Horseshoe Casino, and there's not a ton of people betting big money in Shreveport, Louisiana. So we decided to leave that casino and go to Harris. And when we got to Harris, they were already on to us. They were looking for us. So we basically tried to get out of there. Now, we still had to go back to the Horseshoe, unfortunately, because I had not cashed out on my money there. When we went back there, again, they were waiting for us and basically chased us off the riverboat at gunpoint. You know, they, they – followed us very closely in a truck as we tried to walk off property. And when I say we, I'm actually saying me. I'm alone because my guys are all in the car waiting for me, and they're trailing me, the casino security, in a pickup truck with a gun, a shotgun rack in the back with shotguns on it, and, you know, basically just trying to intimidate us. Um, And so those moments, you know, didn't happen a ton, but, I mean, they definitely try – to intimidate you because, one, I think that a lot of casino personnel don't know that card counting isn't illegal. In other words, they think you're doing something illegal, so they think that they have the right to detain you, to, you know, to prosecute you, blah, 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 when in reality, you know, they, they don't have any ability to do that because what you're doing is not illegal. Uh, I've seen, that, like, a TV show, um, I, I forgot the name, Las Vegas, you know, the, the show around the – the guys who track in, in, in Vegas and all of that stuff, like, and they periodically will pull someone into a back room and you know, ask them questions and all that kind of stuff. Have you have you had that sort of thing happen to you? <clears throat> have I ever been um, put into a back room? No, I mean, right. that, that happens for sure. I mean, that's happened to a lot of guys on the team. For me, the thing is, I always knew my rights, and my rights were that they had no they had no right to detain me because I wasn't doing anything illegal. So the moment they started saying, hey, we want to take you to this back room, I'd say, sorry, no, um, I'm not doing anything illegal. If you don't want me here, I'm just going to leave. And that would take care of it. You would just leave. Exactly. So um, you obviously did well with your your blackjack stuff. Why not run, like, the the training camp to train tons of guys to continue taking down all the casinos around the U.S.? Um, I, why, why don't I keep doing that, are you saying? Well, instead of doing it yourself, run a, a big training system to train lots of guys and, and stop guys, all, you know, even all over the world. And then, and then back them and, and run a business that way? Right. It's just not a, you know, I, I don't know if I've been able to make this as clear as, as possible. It's, it's, it's not that lucrative where 
especially given the the environment in the casinos right now where they um, are very on to card counting. They're very on to team play, which is what we did. So you might spend, you know, six months training someone to go into a casino and win lots of money, and they might go in three times and get kicked out. And then all of a sudden that, that investment you made and making them a good card counter is gone. So it's just not worth the time that you spend on it right now. If you've got nothing else going on and that's what you want to do, that's great. It's not a bad way to make a living. But, you know, for me, I have other things that I want to do. And being a, you know, card counting expert who trains people how to card count and backs them in casinos is, is not – that's not what I want to do. I, I don't certainly don't be – you know, certainly don't uh, um, look down on someone who'd want to do that, but that's not my thing. Right. No, that's really interesting. Um, so the basically the casinos have been pretty effective at stopping it. <clears throat> yeah, I mean they've always been somewhat they've always been somewhat um, effective at stopping it. But the reality is that um, you know they they forgot for a little while, or we were better than for a little while. And and you know card counting has been around since the 1960s when a professor by the name of Ed Thorpe um, basically figured it out um, using, you know, a very, very simple computer simulation at that point to do it. And he wrote a book called Beat the Dealer, and it, it, you know, it swept the nation. It was a New York Times bestseller, the whole deal. Card counting has been known since then. Um, and, uh, you know, what happened with us is that we were able to do some things that the casino hadn't necessarily seen in a while and wasn't necessarily looking for. So we were able to beat the casino and, and sort of sneak up on them. But in general now, the casinos know what's going on, and, and they've, they've introduced a lot of things that they didn't have before, be it continuous shufflers or, um, you know, automatic shufflers that, that make it either very hard to card count or impossible. All right. What about uh, online? Does it apply to online or the same, or is it different? <clears throat> you know, I don't know a lot about the online situation. Um, my guess is that people that, you know, play blackjack um, more for a living than I do right now have tried online. And, um, you know, if they've tried if, – if online is beatable, people have, have tried – people have already been beating it. And they've prob it's probably gone away, like its ability to be beaten. So uh, that was in a very articulate way of saying that, I don't think that there's a beatable game online. I might be wrong, but I believe that if there was a beatable game online, people would be beating the crap out of it right now, and the casinos that offered it would have to do away with it. Right. So you, you did card counting. Um, it, it became a book. It became a movie. That kept you busy for a while. And then you went and became a uh, – or you, you started in that business. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've done a variety of things in the Internet world. Um, I started – the first company I started um, was an online golf instructional website. So we actually had seven of the top 15 and uh, 15 of the top 100 golf instructors signed up to exclusive contracts to basically provide us with 30 to 90-second online video tips. But it, this was a, a group company we started in the late 90s, so it just was a horrible time to be starting a company of that type, you know, sort of a content play around video. Um, if we had started it earlier or now, um, it probably would have been in a better position, but we eventually sold that business uh, to demand media. The second business that I started uh, was a, a company that did in the personal finance space. 
So it was a company called Circle Lending. And what we did there was allow people to make loans between family and friends. So if you wanted to lend money to someone you knew and wanted to make it legally binding, set up a promissory note and a payment schedule, we would handle all that for you. That company we we had a little bit of success with and then eventually sold it to um, Richard Branson at Virgin. And then the last company I started was a company called uh, Citizen Sports. Originally, we started it as ProTrade, which was a, a new media business in sports, sort of a new game, a new community built around the concept of an athlete stock market, so buying and selling athletes just like they were stocks. Um, we also had a lot of notions in that business of trying to introduce the concepts of um, advanced statistics or analytics within sports and trying to expose them to people in, in a mainstream media way. That company, uh, for about three years, had some level of success, but we were concerned about how big it would ever become. So we actually course-corrected or changed quite a bit and became a company called Citizen Sports. It was all the same people, um, and we still had some of the assets from the pro-trade work. And the, the Citizen Sports company was basically a, a new media business in sports, all built around distributed platforms. So we were the top sports provider on Facebook, um, really the top sports provider on the iPhone and on the Android. And that company we sold about three months ago to Yahoo. How, does, how was are you able to talk about the deal size of the venue sales that you did? Um, you know, it was it was a good. Everyone everyone made money. Everyone was happy. So um, you know, it wasn't. I, I can't talk about the specifics or the numbers. But so you, I mean, you've gone through. You started three businesses and you sold three businesses. Uh, yes, um, I have. You know, they they all had varied levels of success. But yes, all three have ha- have had um, sales. No, I mean, even if your first business was a crappy sale to demand media, I mean, you're still able to go and do it. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there that, that have trouble with M&A, and it seems like you, you've been able to do that fairly easily. Yeah, no, it's 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 been good. And, I mean, and, and in, you know, in the cases of um, in the case of the first two companies, I was the founding CTO of both businesses, sort of built the product from the beginning. And in, in, in both the first two was only marginally um, involved when the sale – occurred, I kind of moved on to other things. So the only deal that I was really integrally involved in the M&A was the most recent one. But you're right. right. I mean, I, I, you know, I think it's funny because I don't sit back and, and think about my successes as an entrepreneur and kind of rest on my laurels. I'm kind of always looking at, you know, what is that next thing that's, that's going to be, you know, the, the, the great game changer. Um, and, you know, I read an article once when I was young, when I was, like, thinking about becoming an entrepreneur that basically said, you know, the the real entrepreneurs, the great entrepreneurs kind of change the world. They do something that changes the world. And I guess I've always wanted to do one of those businesses that, that fundamentally changes the way people do things. Um, and I don't think I've really necessarily done that yet. So maybe that's, to me, going to be the, the mark of, of having really succeeded in something. So you're going to keep taking swings at it until you, until you nail that? You know, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, like, in, in terms of my new book, and <clears throat> one of the things that I hope it does is is changes the world to some degree by giving a way, you know, giving a um, access to information and to knowledge um, to people about, you know, statistics and whatnot that, that wouldn't read a book like this. The world of statistics and numbers and data that's been written about quite a bit, and certainly there's a big movement going on right now where you know lots of people are talking about it, writing about it. Obviously, Michael Lewis and Moneyball and whatnot. The ideas, you know, of how to use it in your life, how to use it in business, how to make better decisions. 
a lot of the stuff that's been written there has been heavily academic and has been difficult to get to a mainstream audience. And you, you don't want that. You want the mainstream audience able to read this stuff so they can be the ones thinking about, well, how in my life and my job can I improve our processes by using data and analytics, even if I'm not a math major or I can't sit behind a spreadsheet and do a, a linear regression. You know, I, I want to get that message out to people in a way that's very interesting, in a way that, you know, they'll read. Like, they'll basically read about gambling and sports stories and won't even realize that they're reading a book about statistics. Yeah, and so I've been reading some of your book, and you talk about some of the, um, like, there's a, a part just at the very beginning where um, you're, you were down a ton of money and you followed your system and that ended up uh, swinging back into your favor and how... The emotional stress of it, you you knew you, you you had to trust in your system to get through that. You then go on and talk about an example with a guy on the roulette table who is playing roulette and uh, had won a ton of money with you, and then he goes and loses a bunch of it on roulette, and and because he was just basically follow emotion rather than than any kind of a system. Right. Well, I mean, I think that the 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 story or the message behind blackjack is and gambling in general is that there's only one game in the casino that's beatable um, over time. And, and, you know, there's a couple other gambling games, like sports gambling you can beat and, and horse racing you can beat. But the only game in the casino that's beatable is blackjack. And that's because it's the only game that's subject to something called conditional probability, meaning what you see impacts what you're going to see. You can learn from its history. Roulette's a game that every spin is independent. So no matter what you've seen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't tell you anything. If you see five reds in a row, it doesn't mean that black's going to come up next. It just means that you've seen five reds in a row. And so people don't necessarily understand that. And the, the thing that's kind of funny about, about gambling in general is that because the smart person kind of knows that the odds are, are, are slated against them, I think that they kind of look for opportunities or, you know, reasons um, why the odds might be in their favor. In other words, they create, you know, a lot of the best, a lot of the uh, the biggest gamblers, not necessarily successful gamblers, but biggest gamblers are uh, people that are very superstitious. And it's because they um, are hoping and, and they believe in some kind of higher power that might help them win. You know, if you believe that, well, all of a sudden gambling becomes something that maybe you can beat. But if you don't believe in, you know, a higher power or any kind of superstition, all you're left with is the numbers, and the numbers would tell you you're not going to win. Well, I mean, you're saying that, but then further on in the book, you talk about the CEO of Enron, Jeff Gilling, and how he was trying to be very analytical about stuff, but just became blind to what was going on at Enron and, and didn't follow the numbers closely enough. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. I mean, like, if you when you divorce yourself... I wasn't saying that – I'm not saying that people that are superstitious and gamble are, are going to be successful. I'm saying that, that quite to the contrary, that the reason that they do it is because they're looking for um, some sort of, uh, some sort of uh, encouragement in terms of why they should be sitting at a, at a table or at a slot machine even though they're going to be losing and they know they're going to be losing. It, it, it is the same thing with skilling. You know, skilling is – you know, he kind of like in, in the back of his mind knows that what they're doing is wrong or what they're doing, but he, he chooses to ignore the facts by sort of having what I, I call confirmation bias in this case, where he has a theory that he wants to confirm, which is that they're as pure as the driven snow, and he only wants to surround himself or remember facts that help support 
that case that he's as pure as the driven snow. And and that's like one of the greatest lessons that I think from you know from that chapter in my book. One of the greatest lessons is just this concept that if you are a leader in a business, you cannot surround yourself with people that are just going to agree with you. And you need to seek information potentially that disagrees with whatever notion or whatever theory you have, because that's the best way that for you to be objective. And oftentimes the best way to do that is to have a real analytical approach where you look at data, you look at statistics, you look at information to make decisions rather than just relying on anecdotal information from a few people that you know are going to agree with you. I, I don't know the specifics, but wasn't that how they handled the, some of the debates around the Cuban Missile Crisis, where they had, the, they had like the devil's advocate in there all the time pushing the other point of view? Yeah, I, I, I think so. You know, I don't, I don't know that area uh, too well, but yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that having people, um, you know, dissent from you is is important, and um, and you know, I, I, I'm, it's it, it's a difficult thing because you you brought up an interesting point, which is the devil's advocate, which is something that's very, and and you know, talking about the entrepreneurial world, the devil's advocate can be very difficult and can be very uh, destructive in in a um in a operation because um oftentimes what happens with the with the devil's advocate is that is that the devil's advocate will stifle um innovation where you know you have a bunch of people in a room trying to brainstorm about something and you have that one devil's advocate who's just you know trying to dissent with things and and I think that that's that's a delicate balance I don't know if if you if you follow what where I'm going and the only reason I say it is that that's probably this is probably near and dear to my heart because I think that um, the concept of a de- the devil's advocate is is uh, is is a difficult one to because you're just if you're just disagreeing to disagree, it's different than if you're disagreeing because you have facts behind why you're disagreeing. And so, what you're saying is that you you, you believe it should always be backed by data. Yeah, I think so. So would you not agree with the devil's advocate approach? You more you more just want you want to just have as much facts as you can. Yes, I would say so. I mean, uh, you know, now I've never thought about it like that, but the reality is I don't like people dissenting just to dissent. I mean, there's it, it depends on what what part of the process you're in. If you're in the creative process, I don't think the devil's advocate is is good. But if you're in sort of the you know, when you're ultimately making a decision on what to do and what not to do, having dissenting viewpoints is certainly helpful. But again, at the end of the day, if you can have things backed by data and backed by real analytics versus just someone's opinion, you're always going to end up with the, with better decisions. So talking about your startup, so did you tend to be the CTO in all the startups you worked in? Uh, the CTO, not the CEO. Right, the CTO. So you, you tend to be the CTO, so you're a tech guy? Uh, well, my first two companies that I talked about, I was the CTO, um, and then I've kind of moved over more to uh, a business development slash uh, Marcom kind of role. Um, in my last business, I probably did about one-third product marketing, uh, one-third marketing communications, and one-third business development. And I guess what I'm interested, where I'm going with this, is I'm interested to understand how the SAS background that you you talked about being very important, which you, you, you learned at MIT, and then and then used in in, in card counting at, at the casino, how that helped you do some things better in your job at say citizen sports. I think that the, the the card counting lessons from that make make me better um, at citizen sports really hinge around um, not so much necessarily 
the numbers as much as, as uh, they hinge around just sort of the, the teamwork aspect of it, the trust aspect of it. I mean, I think one of the things that you learn when you're a car counter is how important trust is because you're giving hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash to people, sending them to Vegas with it and telling them to make you some money. And for you to be successful doing that, um, you really have to trust the person that, that you're involved with. And I, and I, I think about that as, a, as a, a very base level of trust, like trust in, in their integrity, which is, which is the first level of trust. But then as you think about us and, and how we function as an organization, having um, different people at different tables collecting the information than, enough, than one person like myself coming in and, and betting the big money, that type of thing, I need to rely on the person at my table or the people on my team to be doing their job correctly. If they're not doing their job correctly, then I absolutely can't be successful in, in how I'm doing it. And I think that that's very similar to when you're an entrepreneur or when you start, it's two of you guys and you do everything yourself. And then once you start growing, you grow and grow and grow, and then you've got to trust people to effectively do their job correctly below you, otherwise you can't grow as an organization. I'm interested, you're, you're talking about the main examples rather than any of the, the stats stuff and driving business forward using facts and stats rather than emotion. It, 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 the trust issues have turned out to be more important for you, have they? It's funny because there's, there's two sets of lessons that I learned from the Blackjack stuff. The first, I would say, they, they call that the soft business lessons. And I don't talk about those as much in my book. And then there's the hard business lessons. And the hard business lessons are the lessons that are around data and analytics and using data and analytics to make better decisions and whatnot. I mean, how we use that at, at Citizen Sports certainly were, were, because we're on the Internet, we have tons of information that we get. We're gathering constantly about, you know, users, what pages they're viewing, where they're exiting, you know, who are our users and all that kind of stuff. And so all that type of behavior, that type of process is certainly something that we took from our days playing blackjack. What we kind of ended up changing or, or the, the decisions that we made, you know, were a lot of times based on data and analytics. And, and certainly that is a base level of, of what we learned from the days at the blackjack tables. But in terms of just straight entrepreneurship, um, a lot of, I think, being a successful entrepreneur is, is building a good team managing that team and, and trusting that team. And when I look at, you know, different people that I've worked with at times and, and the people that I, I probably wouldn't work with again are the people that I, one, didn't trust or, didn't, more importantly, I didn't think trusted people below them to do their job. And that's just not the kind of environment that I'd want, and it, it's because that's not – I definitely learned that to some degree from my days at the blackjack table. So what, in the past while you've been traveling around just like speaking about card counting and stats and that kind of stuff and you decided to turn it into a book, is that, is that what you've been doing while you were doing citizen sports? Yeah, I was. I mean, it was, uh, it was never like a, that much of a, I probably give anywhere from 15 to 20 speeches a year. You know, it would be something I would do, take a couple of days off from citizen sports and go do this or I would do it as part of a, a trip with Citizen Sports and whatnot. So it was kind of like a, a, side, a side hobby that I was doing during the time. And what's funny is the book that I wrote, I wrote during the time I was working uh, with, at Citizen Sports, but all of the work that I did on the book was outside of normal hours. So I, I didn't write it at all while I was at the office. I would write it on weekends and at night, um, and it made for some very long nights. And so... Coming up next, then you're you're going to be pushing this book. Are you going to be 
then just delving back into doing another startup? Or, or uh, well, like, where do you go next? Um, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, for me, the focus has been on this book. It's been on promoting this book. And, and like I said before, I mean, I think it's an important book in that my hope is that people who read it will understand data and analytics in a way that they, they never have before in a way and have an appreciation for it. I've been very focused on promoting the book. And then I'm doing a speaking tour of Asia and a speaking tour of Middle East, North Africa. Um, and then and then after that, and in, in probably uh, beginning of next year, I'll start to think about what to do next. The The important thing for me in this next you know, five to six months is to meet as many amazing people as I can and to sort of learn about as many new things as I can so that I get some ideas on, on what my next move will be and I have sort of the, the best opportunity in front of me to make that decision. You know, for me, like, the, the process is that, you know, you're always, always, always learning, and I want to keep learning and, and keep um, meeting new people that are doing great things because, you know, my world has been very much around, you know, consumer Internet. That's that's what I've done, and I enjoy it. But certainly there's a lot of ways to skin a cat, um, and I would love to sort of, you know, you hear about all these. When I go to Asia, I'm speaking to all YPO and EO chapters, and so going to Asia and speaking to YPO and EO chapters and learning from them and what they're doing, you know, I think will be a fascinating experience for me. Hey, yeah, so you're Asian. Are you originally from Taiwan? Well, my parents are from China and then migrated to Taiwan, but I'm I'm – was born here. Um, I was born in the U.S. Wait, what part of China are your parents from? Uh, my dad is from Fujian, and my mom is from Hangzhou. Uh, I was in Hangzhou last year. Um, I, I mean, I, I went there as part of a tour with Dave, on, Dave McCool's Geeks on a Frame trip, and I was blown away by China. I hadn't been to China in like 20 years. Um, I went there when I was really little. And I would imagine for a guy like you with Asian roots that it would be uh, a draw to want to go, go and do something there, would it not? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be it'll be very fun. It'll be in in terms of if I could figure out something to do there for more of a full time thing and and look for opportunities there, I, I would love to. I, I just need to I need to have my Chinese uh, speaking a little better. You do you speak Mandarin? Uh, a little bit, not well though. Not enough that I would feel comfortable at all, you know, going there and speaking Mandarin. Yeah, no, that's tough. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there, but I'm sure you'll you'll get hooked up with that. Um, we can talk after the call. I can. Connect with some of my internet guys over there if you want. Um, I'm interested just to know on the on the um, just t- talking the, the gaming stuff. You mentioned that uh, sports betting and, and horse trading can be beaten. Well, I, I don't know for sure on horse trading just because I've never you know done any work around it. But yeah, absolutely, I've heard or heard that it is because there's analytics that you can use. And <clears throat> the key is in anything to beat anything, you need to find an inefficiency. Um, and you need to find a way to use data and analytics to exploit that inefficiency. And that's definitely true. That's definitely possible in sports betting, and I've heard that it's true in um, in horse racing. That's interesting. And did you do it? For, have you done it for a while in uh, sports betting? Um, we've done some work in it where we've kind of looked at just the different ways that you can use data and analytics to beat, horse, uh, to beat sports betting, yeah. Because I would think that, why would you have an edge over, like, any random sports betting guy or, or guys that are fairly serious about it? Um, because, well, <clears throat> there's, there's, there's always – anytime that you have situations like this, there's always a couple ways that you gain advantage. And in, in, in sports betting, one is that there's not um, there's not a lot of people out there, and by a lot I mean there's only a few that have um, – 
one, access to the data. Okay, so just getting the data is hard in sports because you either have to pay a lot of money to one of those providers that collects it, um, or you have to have been collecting yourself over the years. Two, you have to have a, an understanding of sports and the way sports works. Three, you have to have an understanding of statistics and the way statistics work. And four, you have to understand um, betting and money management and sort of optimal uh, money management strategies. So there's not a lot of people who have all four of those. And so um, that's why you can gain an advantage because most the common better is just out there, you know, looking at a game in a vacuum and just saying, oh, okay, I think this team's going to win. And you're never going to win over the long haul doing it that way. And so just one last question then on casinos. Are you even able to get into casinos? I mean, if I wanted to party with you in Vegas, are you going to be the guy that's like, you're not allowed into any of the casinos? Uh, yeah, I'm not. Well, I'm allowed in casinos, and they still treat me very well, but if I tried to sit down at a blackjack table, they wouldn't really like that. So as long as I <laughs> stay away from the blackjack tables, they're nice to me. <laughs> and they are actually like, they, they're nice to you. They know who you are. It's like, hey, how's it going? You know, it's like that. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean they they are. I mean they are nice to me. They um I still get treated very well at restaurants and clubs and whatnot, you know, treated like a VIP. And the a lot the a lot of the reason is because I don't try to play blackjack anymore. I don't try to um you know, that would upset them and I try to stay away from upsetting them. All right. Cool. That's interesting. All right, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to talk about? Um you know, I mean basically just in terms of the new book what, what the goal of the new book was is, is to sort of help people have a framework to make better business decisions and tell that story through gambling and sports stories. So to make it interesting and accessible for them. Um, and, you know, what I hope is that a lot of people will find out about it, so a lot of people will read it, because I just do think it's, it is an important sort of next step in this movement of statistics and analytics. Cool. Well, Jeff, thanks very much for your time. No problem. Thanks for having me.